strange atmosphere about that beginning, suggestion of nervous lyrical flight in the solo writing, and of foreboding in the accompaniment. This sets the scene rather well for the chorus's first words, our eyes are blinded. But what is it that blinds the chorus's eyes? By the holiness you bear, Nicholas himself. It's clear from the beginning that St. Nicholas is no ordinary person. He's not a sinful, erring, all-too-human being like the Apostle Peter. The chorus tells us that the saint's attributes obscure the simple man, urges him to strip off his glory and speak. But the moment he does, the fact that he's a dazzling professional tenor and accompanied by a glittering three-hand piano starburst that frames his words, immediately marks him off from the massed voices and from most of the players. example there of Britain's consideration for amateur players. Those piano scales sound brilliant, but they're carefully spaced between the two players, and they're the sort of thing that two good students could play reasonably comfortably. The chorus then responds to Nicholas's eloquent exhortations. Generally speaking, Eric Crozier's libretto is highly successful. It's strong enough, but not too poetic so as to get in the composer's way, you might say. The next movement is The Birth of Nicholas, and this is at the point where, for some, the doubts about this piece begin. The boys' voices tell of Nicholas's miraculous birth and his growth to saintly manhood, to the kind of tune that children might sing in the playground. I can't improve on what Britain's biographer Michael Kennedy has written about this. Nicholas's birth is cast in that vein of blithe and knowingly innocent melody which either enchants or exasperates the listener, depending on how responsive one is to this simplicity in Britain.
we do very much see the adult Nicholas in the next movement. Nicholas devotes himself to God. This could easily have been very pious and worthy, but the extreme contrast with the previous movement is nicely judged. Innocence leads to experience. Nicholas becomes aware of the evil and suffering of the world. He's moved to compassion and an agonizing sense that he must do something. But what? The key word, which Crozier's text repeats, is heartsick. Now, where the story of the miraculous birth was all jolly modal tunes, here that key word is set to a very chromatic, tortuous line. And each time we hear it, it rises slightly, the intensity thereby increasing. It needs a professional to get the notes spot on, but it also needs an adult to understand the feeling. alternates between the gripping and the possibly not so gripping. The story of Nicholas's journey to Palestine falls into the former camp. It shows how good a musical storyteller Britain was. After all, this is the man who'd already composed Peter Grimes and the chamber operas The Rape of Lucretia and Albert Herring, in all of which the theme of threatened innocence plays a big part. Here we are now in Nicholas's sea voyage to Palestine. Nicholas prophesies a storm, but the sailors mock him derisively, though in rather tasteful language, considering that Britain was writing for a school. Nicholas calls on God to show them what he can do. All the time, the pianists repeat a highly effective little motif that could be either flashing lightning or lashing waves. there of one of Britain's greatest semi-professional works, the cantata Neuer's Flood. In the seventh movement, we return with a vengeance, you might say, to the theme of innocence under threat, and especially male innocence, which is what preoccupied Britain for most of his life. 
Actually, it's more than a threat here. This is the movement entitled Nicholas and the Pickled Boys. It's difficult to tell in this whether Crozier and Britain meant it as a joke or not. Sometimes Britain was surprisingly deaf to comedic double meanings in his texts. Here, famine stalks the land, and there is talk of three missing boys. They're named as Timothy, Mark, and John. It turns out, and this is particularly gruesome, that they've been murdered and cured as meat. Despite this grim subject, the movement begins as a jaunty little march, strongly reminiscent of an earlier work for string quartet with the title Go Play, Boy, Play. Duality 
is central to Britain. Innocence, horror, and an apparent resolution, which maybe isn't a resolution at all. The end of St. Nicholas is fascinatingly poised in this respect. First comes a powerful evocation of the death of Nicholas. Even a saint may fear death, especially when it's registered as sharply as Britain portrays it, with agitated strings and jangling, percussive piano writing. Nicholas's words merge movingly there with the choruses singing of the well-known Church of England prayer, Nunc Dimittis. Every boy at Lansing College in 1948 would have known that, and it was important for Britain that people could get his cultural cross-references. But even that in itself doesn't seem to be enough for Britain. You get the sense that he's still searching for some kind of satisfactorily Christian answer. There are several hymns interspersed with the action in St. Nicholas, rather like the Lutheran hymns in Bach's Passions or the Black American Spirituals in Tippett's A Child of Our Time, which was composed in the early 40s and was enjoying some success by 1948. Britain chooses to end St. Nicholas with a hymn whose words, on the face of it, seem apposite enough. in a mysterious way his wonders to perform, a classic answer from an old-fashioned churchman to annoying questions like the perennial, why does a loving God permit the appalling suffering of innocence? If you're a Christian, that might be a satisfactory answer, but it can also sound a bit like the parent's classic, because I say so, the sort of answer that's meant simply to crush opposition. 
I admit I can't help wishing that Britain had found a less conventionally pious way of ending St. Nicholas. Something more like the ending of the War Requiem, for instance. The possibility of some redemption without trying to assuage the pain of doubt or of ambiguity. Britain takes big strides forward towards this in St. Nicholas. You may find the happy ending for the pickled boys unsettling, or what Michael Kennedy calls the knowing innocence of Nicholas's miraculous birth and growth. But look beyond the face value. It's all very personal. As a boy, like St. Nicholas in a way, Britain was treated as a kind of answer to prayer, a miracle by his mother and by scores of adoring relatives. Some of the accounts of how he was virtually worshipped as a godsend prodigy make uncomfortable reading. Yet as an artist, Britain was great enough in his work to penetrate the ambiguity and the terror behind this and present us with some uncomfortable but searing truths of existence, expressed often movingly and beautifully. And this, of course, without offering any answers, is how art can help us accept and live with the truths of existence. Maybe St. Nicholas isn't quite there yet. Maybe it isn't as masterly a summation of the problem as the turn of the screw or the war requiem. But it's very nearly there, and there's quite enough fine music and truth in it to make it more than a worthwhile listen. Oh.